Israel at war on the cusp of week three. We see an alarming rise in anti-Semitic rhetoric and incidents around the world. Who is actually in charge of Israel's war against Hamas? We will discuss the strategic power play, diplomatic pressure over humanitarian aid, and a shout out to women in combat. It's Unholy. I'm Unit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. It's unholy two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcast. As you say, it is week three. Uh, sometimes it feels like year three, and that's from this distance. You're there. I mean, I, I don't know how you, people around you, how are people bearing up? Uh, with um, intense difficulty. It's still, uh, you know, almost two weeks, and it, we all find it uh, very hard to get up in the, mor- in the morning and to continue to breathe, quite honestly, uh, with everything that's still being uncovered and the information that we're still getting. I have to say that uh, kind of this thought came to me uh, in recent days about the fact that we've been doing this podcast for three years um, and what our original thinking about it was and what it is now, that there's a gap uh, between the two parts of the Jewish world and Israel and diaspora. And the way to kind of bridge that bridge that gap is doing what Jews do pretty well, which is talking. And hmm. you kind of think about the fact that now the bond really seems much closer than ever, that there's not really a gap. But the, tr- the circumstances are, are, of course, horrendous for this, but that the conversation somehow, I don't know, am I wrong about this? The conversation somehow became closer, not only because of the terrible massacre that, that we went through in Israel and everyone in the Jewish world has a friend and knows someone who was in those circles of, of the victims, but also because of really this terrible feeling of, of Jews around the world that they aren't safe, all being part and parcel of the whole, the same story. I think this, uh, again, I wouldn't wish for these circumstances, but I think it does kind of bring us closer together. Yeah, I, I had that realization in a really direct way this week. Um, I, the mm-hmm. first, early on in the week, I was in Sweden, a long arranged trip to Stockholm to talk about my book, which, as you know, is a Holocaust related book about the man who escaped from Auschwitz uh, to warn the world. And, uh, you know, first of all, it was very warming to have people come up to me in Stockholm saying they listen to Unholy and they're, you know, they're <laughs> regulars. And that was obviously great. But it was more the case that they were absolutely going through this. I mean, Jews in Sweden, it's a small community there, just numbering in the, in the thousands, maybe to 15 or 20,000. Um, but just the conversations around the dinner table were the same as the ones in London. And I'm suspecting Paris or New York or wherever that this is a collective moment. And the, and, and they follow the same sort of shape, which is first of all, friends and family in Israel, everyone has somebody and they are, they have a story to tell. And it's that point we've talked about before of one or two degrees of separation. And that's the priority that people talk about what our Israel is going through. And then there's this secondary level, which is what's this all doing to us? And, um, you know, the heightened security, the heightened anxiety everywhere. And, and this was the conversation around a very interesting table that I was at on the very first night. And, you know, I, I was straight out of the airport and into this conversation where there were people, both Jewish and not Jewish, around the table talking about, you know, all the assumptions that they'd had about their non-Jewish neighbors often 
and how the, on the left or liberal opinion have all been shaken up by this. I mean, we'll get into all of it as we talk, yeah. but just it was it was striking to me that almost wherever you are, you could just put a pin in a map, and people are talking about Israel and Gaza. They're talking about how everyone's reacted to it, and if they're Jewish, they're talking about what Israelis are going through, and then next level what they as as Jews are going through. And it, it's a really dispiriting thought, but it seems like Jews are the only people in the world who can be brutally attacked like this and then being blamed for it, which is really something to, you know, live through. It's it's interesting. I read uh, someone on Twitter, her name is Daniela Greenbaum. She's a writer and a producer, and she wrote something about how she, she quoted this, you're, you're, you, you love Pesach, and she quoted the line we always sing on Pesach setters, right? In every generation they rise um, up against us and try to kill us, but God will save us from their hands. And she said, I used to think my ancestors were trying to make me appreciate my history. Now I understand they were preparing me. That's a pretty haunting thought. But let's uh, try to take a breath. And uh, we will, of course, dive into that a little bit uh, further in our show. But I do want to maybe talk about what our I'll call it latest developments, although we should say, and now that we are recording this on a, on a Thursday afternoon, things have been moving so quickly here uh, that these are the latest developments as of this moment, uh, really. Um, the ground incursion seems to be a bit delayed. The main reason for that right now is leaving room for a hostage negotiation. We shall remind our listeners there are 220 hostages uh, in the hands of Hamas, the youngest of which being nine-month-old uh, Kfir Bibas and 30 children, all in all, uh, in the hands of this terror organization. Um, and Israel is still hoping that it can somehow, uh, we'll talk about this later, but somehow with Qatari involvement, uh, maybe somehow get uh, them back. We have seen a release of two women, uh, Nurit Cooper and Yocheved Lifshitz, this week, two women in their 80s that uh, Hamas did release. Uh, so those are the main sort of, I think, developments. And of course, we are uh, under a rocket attack uh, the whole time. And uh, here in Israel and the Air Force is continuing its bombing of uh, the Gaza Strip in an attempt to um, win this war against Hamas. Yeah, and we, um, I really wanted to talk about the release of the hostages. That was obviously um, a really important moment, such relief for the families. The daughter of one of those two hostages had been the face of the hostage release campaign here in Britain. Yocheved Lifshitz's daughter, Sharon, had been uh, the voice uh, who was on TV, you know, on the radio and on television. So that moment, uh, obviously joy and relief, it's laced with pain because it's only four of more than 200 hostages that was very direct in the case of uh, Jochevid Lifshitz because, of course, relief for her, but her husband is still a hostage. And then there was this thing with the optics, and there were, it was talked about uh, outside Israel, I'm sure inside Israel as well. It'd be fascinating to know how that moment played. Her shaking hands, offering a hand to one of her captors on her release, apparently saying, speaking to him, saying shalom is what was reported. And how people responded to that. I mean, I, I confess in some ways I had sort of mixed feelings about it, just almost instinctively. But um, tell me what, how that's played out uh, where you are. So there were mixed feelings here as well. It was the, the handshake. And also, of course, she, she described when she was talking in a press conference, she described uh, at length that how she went through hell and she was beaten and she was abducted, all of that. And then she said, actually, in captivity, once I was in captivity, they treated us well. 
which of course makes sense for two reasons. One is that Hamas wants to, you know, it's it's a cruel and sadistic terror organization. We've seen how sadistic and how wicked they are, but they want the um, hostages alive and well to receive what whatever they want in return for their release. Uh, and also, they wanted her to say that she is she was uh, taken care of very well. That helps them to uh, let's say whitewash a little bit of their image that has been slightly tarnished by a lot of what has been coming out. Also, her husband, as you mentioned, Oded, is still uh, in captivity. So she wouldn't want to, you know, that 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 explains a little bit of it. But there were some Israelis who were uh, surprised by that. Um, the, the backstory here is really interesting. She and her husband, uh, what she, they regularly did was to drive Palestinian patients from the border to Israeli hospitals and back. These are the types of people that uh, Hamas uh, targeted. So I think that something in her humanity, uh, and she tried to explain that sort of handshake, saying this is the man who took care of me in captivity. There were all kinds of uh, people talking about the Stockholm Syndrome and things like that. Look, this woman has been through hell for 17 days. Um, So any attempt to try, I think, to criticize her is is completely wrong, in my opinion. And trying to understand her psyche also a little bit complicated because just because of what she's been through completely agree no criticism of her at all and i thought it was really unseemly if anyone did want to do that and you and absolutely i thought the same thing pragmatically she's still got a husband in in captivity of course you would try and do whatever you could for that um no the two things that were uh where i said i had mixed feelings were in no part in, in in any way about judgment of her rather it was there was some reporting which said isn't this kind of admirable and wonderful that she's still a peacenik in a way by talking about the language of shalom and 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 it, as as you know you and I have been saying on here it wasn't just those two it was so many uh, her and her husband it was so many of these uh, residents of southern Israel of those kibbutzim who were involved in coexistence people to people peace activities um so that you know that was part of a wider story no my concern was that this would be and sure enough in the bare pit of social media there were people who seized on this who said there we go the hasbara the israeli propaganda talking point that tries to equate hamas with isis is destroyed at a stroke you see they're not isis they treat their captives well and that's what you know worried me about it that that narrative yeah. if anyone has any questions about how uh, hamas its wickedness in and sadistic really torturing of children women men the elderly i suggest they try and watch the 43 minutes of grisly documentation uh, from their own cameras and that will um, i think focus your mind on whether uh, Hamas is ISIS or not. It's either ISIS or worse than ISIS. Those are the only two options on the table. We wanted to maybe kind of try and zoom out a little bit uh, and see all of the powers that are in play here in this strategic question of the region, Israel, Hamas, Hezbollah, Iran, everything that is going on. And I think we have a perfect guest to do that with. Shimrit Meir was the senior diplomatic advisor to former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, the point of contact uh, to the Biden administration. She's also an expert analyst of the Arab world, and we want to use her expertise to understand the powers of play here and what the different strategies are. Shimrit, thank you so much for talking to us today. Of course. Good to be with you. 
And, and it's good to have you on again. Um, let's begin with Israel's hostage situation. Yesterday, there was talk of a possible deal mediated by Qatar. What are the chances, what would be the rationale by Qatar and by Hamas to actually go for this partial deal uh, vis-a-vis the hostages? Um, so first of all, I think we, we need to understand how Qatar operates because Qatar is a very, very important player generally in the go between, um, not only Israel and Hamas for years, but terrorist organization in Western countries, for example, Al Qaeda in the United States. So the Qataris are, I think, perfected. They are one of the most sophisticated player, I think, on the world stage, and they perfected the political or geopolitical hedging. What do I mean by that? They have very close affiliation and relations with terrorist organization. They are part of their network. Qatar's leadership is committed to the Muslim Brotherhood in terms of ideology, and so does Hamas on one hand. On the other hand, they have excellent relations with the United States. They host a U.S. military base and with Israel. So, and of course, they operate the most, I think, advanced propaganda machine in the world, um, which is Al Jazeera. So they have many tools in their toolkits and they are able to position themselves in a place where they are always indispensable. For example, now they are the only, and I remember us working relentlessly to, to find another mediator that should be able to deliver and basically failing because, for example, now we have a severe humanitarian case, unprecedented, of hostages, children, women, etc. in in Gaza. They are the only ones who can pressure Hamas and maneuver the situation in a way that might, might produce results. Now, what do they want? What do they want and what does Hamas want in this moment? They want to save Hamas from ruin. This is the primary goal. They want to ceasefire. Why do they want a ceasefire? That's simple, because they've already won. In Hamas's eyes, they won. Any moment that this back and forth between them and Israel continues is not good, especially when they hear the strategic goal of the upcoming operation, which is to uproot them from Gaza and to destroy and, and eradicate them. So they and the Qataris share the same goal. Now save Hamas. In order to do that, they need to prolong any window of ceasefire. Because any day that goes by without the beginning of the big operation is a good day in their eyes. The uh, international support they hope will erode and things will get more and more complicated. And also, also, I think they realize that, that the hostages, especially the foreign hostages at the moment in Gaza are more of a liability than an asset. Um, so what they want is short, in, in short, to help Hamas. What do we want? We and the, and the Americans and of course all the international players is to release as many hostages as, as possible. And I think this is why, for example, you saw yesterday the Israeli national security advisor tweets praises to Qatar and many Many in Israel, as you know, thought this was outrageous. And it is outrageous, but it is the kind of things that you have to do. So mm-hmm. we are really between a rock and a hard place here. We need Qatar, and it is indispensable 
but it is also a very, very problematic player. Just explain something which I think listeners might find baffling about Qatar, because people outside, they know about Qatar because they hosted the World Cup, they sponsor a lot of these football teams, they seem to be sort of in or on the edges of being in the fold of the international community and in the West. From Qatar's own point of view, this hedging policy you mentioned, why do they want to have in their toolkit a murderous terrorist organization like Hamas? What's in it for them to be backing and sponsoring an organization that wreaks this kind of havoc? Um, I, I think it goes to, um, to, to, to our biggest blind spot of all. And we had plenty, as you know. Um, but some uh, we still carry with us, um, which is the simple thing because they believe in it. That's the, that's the simple answer. They just simply believe in it. They do believe that Hamas is a fellow sister, let's say, movement. They come from the same root, i.e. the Muslim Brotherhood. They believe that they should sustain power in Gaza. Why? Because. Because. And they are part of the kind of network that allows... Hamas operates within two networks. One is what we call the axis of resistance, uh, which is run by Iran and Hezbollah, etc. That's the more Shiite aspect of the operation. But Hamas is part of another network in the Middle East, which is the Muslim Brotherhood, which is Qatar and Turkey and the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and other. Um, so this is what they believe in. Uh, um, but they also want to maintain their um, power i.e. the resources, the natural resources, the international recognition, the fact that they are a key international player, and they are a very small country, a key international player. So I think this is in terms of how you, you manage your assets on the world stage, this is masterful. We can only watch and learn, but mm. equally dangerous. Mm. You know, that leads this to uh, a very difficult question. If the Israeli government has said that it wants to eradicate Hamas, uh, its ruling power, its military power, everything. And first of all, they have this huge support, right, of Qatar. And uh, on, on one hand, that you mentioned, of course, the axis of, uh, of resistance that we will discuss, uh, Hezbollah, Iran. How can Israel actually win this war? And when we think of that distinction that we keep making, that morally, it's a right distinction to make. These are the Hamas terrorists. These are the Palestinian people. But the truth is that on some level, they have a lot of support from the Palestinian people in Gaza. So how do you disentangle all of this and actually win this war if there's anything like that in, 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 this, in this story? I would say I'm not a military expert. Expert, mm. um, uh, and I think the military. Experts I don't know. Maybe we need of, a few mil a few non-military experts. I'm just saying because the military experts have m brought us to this point, so that's just um, mentioning it. But okay, yeah, so, yes. So and I completely agree with you, and I can't even. Um, and you know, we have you and I have many conversations about <laughs> this and how we can the people that talk so arrogantly and so about what should be done and what should be done, and they were part of what led us to this point. But I would want to suggest two words. One is um, truth, and the second word is sophistication, and not being, being that expected or that obvious. Um, and I will explain. Truth is just to, to stop lying to ourselves. 
stop lie to ourselves. And I'm saying this because for years we convinced ourselves that Hamas's leadership internalized its role as a governing party. And they are consumed with the day-to-day needs of having to feed 2 million people in Gaza. And that they want to lift the siege and that they want workers and they want, you know, infrastructure and investments. And just several weeks before the attack, there were talks about gas for Gaza, which is gas exploration in Gaza shores and, and a seaport and what, what have you. And they now, openly admit that this was all a very sophisticated effort and part of the deceit. This was part of a long plan of deceit. So so I do think that we have to tell ourselves the truth. Another thing, you know, in that context is the argument that I hear, for example, that President Biden makes that Hamas doesn't equal the Palestinian people and these are two separate entities. Well, I, I'm not sure that, you know, we are not kind of refusing to look at, at the situation as it is. Hamas is by far the most popular political party among the Palestinians. They won the election in 2007, and the fact that there weren't any election from then on is because everybody knew that they are going to to win in a landslide. Um, mm-hmm. y- you know, the Biden administration team really made a huge effort for days to extort from President Abbas a condemnation. He didn't. He refused to because he understands his... You didn't see Palestinians on a large scale or even on a small scale condemning this. They are extremely popular. Also, they have an army. The Palestinian army is is Al-Qassam Brigade, is Hamas's military wing. And they, of course, control half of the territory. And if it weren't for the Israeli security uh, control over the West Bank, they would have controlled 100% of the territory, the Palestinian territory. So I think that, first of all, we have to understand that Hamas is not, it is ISIS in many, in many ways, but it is not ISIS. It's unlike ISIS in, in a way that it is rooted in the people. They have the support of the people. They are the party of the people. What can we do? It is what it is. So we have to deal with that. And we have to deal with that when, it, when we think about the exit strategy and the day after. And the second thing that I would mention, Unit, is sophistication. Because mm-hmm. with Hamas, throughout the years, we used to, to do the obvious thing. There was a textbook. They do this. We do that. It was very measured, calculated retaliation to any provocation or attack. I think now they expect us to do, to go in brute force military operation, um, ground forces in Gaza. I would say, uh, and again, I don't want to get into details or give advice at the moment because I know that many are thinking about this exact thing as we speak. I say for once, for once, do the unexpected. Well, with that, let's pick up right away on that thing because that it fascinates me, and I've, I've I've found you know in the things I've been writing about this, I've been making the same point: don't follow the script written by Hamas. People come back to me though and say, well, what what is the other way of doing it? What is the way you could eradicate Hamas as a fighting force without 
a ground invasion. If you refuse to do what Hamas are expecting, you know, you, some people talk about surgical strikes as if that hasn't been tried. Other people talk about special forces operations. And then people say, well, you can't do that unless you've already cleared the ground for that. I mean, you say you're not a military expert. You were in the room advising a previous prime minister on these big strategic decisions. You know, what is the recommendation you would be giving if you were in that room for how this could be done absent uh, a ground invasion? Um, again, I want to stay um, vague on the details on purpose. Um, but I would say that um, when we were looking at the issue, one of the key components was always to attack first, to surprise the enemy. Um, we lost this element. They had it. And they, yeah. uh, you know... Hamas's attack on October 7th, let's not kid ourselves. I think we see it from, through the lenses of the brutality. This was a barbaric, um, really full on medieval, I don't even know to how to call it. However, it was extremely sophisticated and was carried out in, in a very, very professional way. Now we know that they trained in Iran for for a long time, etc. But it was very sophisticated. And another, I think, something that we we shouldn't like, neglect is the fact that Hamas doesn't operate alone. Hamas is part, as I said, from a network. And the fact that we are, um, we have to look at the possibility that our primary source of concern can swiftly move to the north. If we are going to have a full on, at the moment we have back and forth with Hezbollah, which is somewhat contained and limited, even though it, it is on a kind of intense level. But if you have Hezbollah um, deploying or using is its missile capabilities, that this is a completely different ballgame for Israel. So, so we have to calculate this. Um, and we have to again, not project our wishes or our hope that we won't have to fight two fronts, but be prepared to fight two fronts. And if you have to fight two fronts, and if you reach to the conclusion that this is almost inevitable, if your goal is to take down Hamas and they know, and Iran and Hezbollah know that they are going to lose this asset, and that the euphoria is going to be replaced with yet another Nakba or another defeat, mm -hmm. um, we have to be prepared to have our primary front up north. So I would advise thinking about that. And they are intentionally keeping us in the shadows ab uh, ab about this and um, refuse to give direct answers, not to the French, not to the, the Americans and others. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I don't want to get into, and again, I'm not a military expert. This is why you have the br best and brightest minds from both um, Israel and the US um, thinking at the moment. I would just um, urge us to be mindful of, of the fact that throwing in or, or sending hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of Israeli troops into Gaza, it can last years. Um, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about, we talk about the net that, or the two nets rather, the Hamas is part of, let's talk about the net we're part of, which is 
the United States, basically, and, and then the rest of maybe the uh, European world, but but particularly the United States, who really have now this, their skin in the game here. And our, their involvement in this is goes above and beyond anything we've seen. How does that serve Israel's interests uh, in this in this war? Well, it's uh, I think it's um, it's obvious that what President Biden did in the first days of the after the attack was will be remembered for a generation. I'm not exaggerating the solidarity, the support, the kind of father figure um, that we needed, you know, given the void in our leadership. And the reassurance that, and he put his money where his mouth was in terms of sending what he needed to send and sending messages of deterrence to Hezbollah and Iran. Uh, there is an, a pending question whether they are deterred um, and they take it serious and they interpret the intention of the Americans correctly or not, i.e., do they assume that the Americans will follow through? Um, but I'm putting this aside. The Americans were remarkable, nothing short of remarkable in that sense. I do think this is deepen our dependency on the U.S., um, and that's not ideal, and that's something that we will have to address strategically the day after. I think the Americans do want us regain our posture in the region. Nobody wants a weak ally. Um, and I do think that in terms of public opinions, and I see numbers, and I see numbers both in the US and in Europe, um, you know, uh, politicians are very, very aware of that. There is a vast support in Israel at the moment. However, I, I, I am very worried because I think there is the there is the mass support, but there are some very, very influential uh, people that I can only describe their reaction. Or, you know, I was trying to, I was going back and forth between Tel Aviv and, and New York and London in, a, in the last couple of weeks. And I think the kind of discourse that we saw in, in some of the left leaning circles um, can. I was trying to find a word for it to describe how I feel and how people around me feel about that. And the word is, is betrayal. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, I'm, I have to say I'm kind of, I'm kind of shook by it because, you know, people not even taking one moment to empathize with complete victimhood here. People, rushing to blame the victim, to um, find all these excuses for who? For Hamas, a radical Islamic regime that oppresses women and kills gays and want to, you, you know, I, I just can't get it. And also, this was, you know, when you, 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 you think about throughout the years about, for example, Holocaust denial, um, you know, there, there are decades separate us from the reality. Here, Hamas broadcasted this entire thing with GoPros on their telegram. And we have mm -hmm. the hard evidence and they are out there for you to see. And yet, um, I have to say that many of my friends are now kind of, I think, feel detached or 
in the process of soul searching. And I have to say, personally, I lost friends over this. Mm. Um, yes, because I, I couldn't just, it's not just another cycle of violence. It's not just another ping pong between Israel and Hamas. This was harsh on another level. This yeah. was personal for any of us. And I just couldn't hear the but yes. the days after. This is something um, Yonit and I have been talking about since the beginning on the podcast, precisely the feelings you're describing. It was a jolt to me too that it happened just straight afterwards. Since then, um, in a way, I think we would expect it. And that's what, something I want to ask you about, which is sit, what, sit, the reactions to the Israeli response and the Israeli response itself. Now that Israel is itself, you know, acting in this and, and airstrikes, death toll estimated by Gaza uh, sources, as we speak, around 5,000 or more killed. And obviously we don't know, you know, we're not counting those numbers ourselves, but that, those are the figures that are reported. And then also that's airstrikes. And then obviously the uh, blockade policy, which has had this impact in terms of humanitarian consequences, that has become the focus of criticism of Israel. It's gone all the way to the UN, so the Security Council, that big argument there between the big big um, uh, powers in the world about a humanitarian ceasefire or uh, a pause. The, the question I want to ask you is, that, is the one from Israel's point of view, again, since beca you know, because you yourself were in that room, in that decision-making. Just explain to us, to our listeners, what Israel's own thinking is, given that it has said it wants to eliminate Hamas as a fighting force, what is the benefit from Israel's point of view in putting, imposing a blockade uh, that limits, diminishes, uh, you know, uh, and we can argue about the scale, the uh, amount of food and medicine and water? I know that fuel is in a particular category because Hamas can use that. But why those essentials being denied to ordinary Palestinians and making headlines all around the world to so that it is now the dominant story. Why does Israel's policymakers think it's in its own interest to impose that blockade? So in terms of the blockade, I want to separate my answer to two periods. First of all, the long term, what they call the siege on Gaza or the blockade or uh, lift the siege. Hamas ran an entire campaign over it. If this was their goal, they were on a trajectory to completely or almost completely economic um, development on a larger scale, on a larger scale. Gazans were given work permits to work in Israel. The Qatari aid was entering on a, on a monthly basis um, and Israel went out of its way to allow it to happen, even though it's completely, you know, it's, it's, it is very problematic because it is basically bribing a terrorist organization. Um, they were talking about long-term projects, as I mentioned. The idea was if this is what they want, we're game. Um, but obviously this is not what they want. This is not what they cared about. If this was what they cared about, Palest the Palestinian territories could have been the most prosperous uh, Arab territories, short of maybe Gulf, um, you know, uh, Gulf states full of natural resources. But this is not the case. Now, the blockade now, again, because of partly the, the American emphasis on uh, humanitarian aid, the uh, supply enters every single day, every single day. 
in terms of energy or, or, or gas or fuel, um, they have resources. They have their reservoirs. Hamas just wants to use it for the war, but they have it. Not only that, they confiscate everything they can from UNRWA. So I do think that humanitarian aid, even though there are, there were many voices in Israel, they, they thought that as long as they have Israeli babies hostage in Gaza, they, sh- there should be a siege. If they want to end it, they can just free these people. Um, but the Americans w- were making the point that this is unacceptable and Israel abides by international law. And the aid enters every single day um, as we speak. But it's just, it's, it's, isn't it? It's just a sort of trickle. It's eight trucks or 12 trucks. It's not the normal amount or the amount that officials on the ground, aid agencies say is needed. I don't think that, um, that Israel has any uh, problem with the amount of humanitarian aid, as long as it is humanitarian aid and it goes to the population, not to Hamas. The problem is that at the moment we have two Gaza strips. We have the northern part and we have the southern part. And the war is taking place in the northern part. And the displacement that we saw is many people coming down south. So it's a very complicated situation. But I just want to reflect some of the sentiment. Um, many Israelis don't even think that this is acceptable. Many Israelis believe that this is immoral, actually, when you have your own citizens, again, very, very um, vulnerable citizens, women, children, babies, you have to do what you have to do to force the enemy to release them, not supply it with humanitarian aid. Um, Humanitarian aid should be to Gazans should not be our problem. We did not launch this attack. We did not initiate this conflict. And nonetheless, so I'm saying that this is, again, and I'm sure that will be, the, the Americans will make, and others will make sure that this is ongoing and this enters on a daily basis. But it is, it is already ugly and it's, it is going to get even uglier. But we did not choose it. The interesting thing is he asked me the same questions, but you gave better answers as usually. As usual, Shimrit, we should have you on more often. Um, we really, really thank you for your analysis, as always. Um, and we, I, something tells me we'll, uh, we'll talk soon. <laughs> thank you so much for talking to us. It was good being with you, Yonit and Jonathan. Thank you, Shimrit. Thank you. Thank you so much. All of that um, completely compelling. And obviously, this is a situation with so many players, so many moving parts. And that was on show in a big way uh, in the sort of forum for global diplomacy at the UN in New York. Uh, the, this whole row erupted um, by the UN uh, Secretary General Guterres, first of all, with his choice of words in which he said, you know, yes, he condemned the attacks of 7th of October, but said, but, you know, these things didn't happen in a vacuum. Israel said that that therefore was saying somehow, once you say that, start talking of context, you're effectively saying that, you know, this is how it was understood, that Israel had it coming, that they were responsible. UN diplomats, uh, Israel's a representative of the UN saying, calling for Guterres to resign. 
uh, saying it was a blood libel, it's anti-Semitic, you're blaming the victim. But all of this coming while the, the UN is, was wrestling with the question of uh, humanitarian aid getting through and this argument about whether there should be a pause, one side uh, want a pause, another saying there should be a ceasefire, that's Russia who are behind that. As you and I speak, none of those have come through. But the the reason why they're important, partly why I, I wanted to ask Shimrit about it, is in terms of the global conversation about what the 7th of October, it is now focused in a dominant way on this question of humanitarian aid. If you open up the world's newspapers, wherever you are, including, you know, Sweden or New York or London, whatever, they are about uh, the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. And, uh, you know, I think there is, it's one of those gaps because I don't think Israel is focused mm -hmm. on that. And yet mm -hmm. around the world, and, you, you know, we've seen it with other heads of government and other people. That's what the people are talking about. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I, to me, it looks from the outside like huge pressure on Israel. Just let some of this food, mm -hmm. water, medicine, and controversially particularly fuel through. But I'm, I'm guessing it's much lower down the running order in Israel. So what you're actually saying is that in the rest of the world, what for two weeks or maybe about two weeks, the front pages was the massacre in Israel, and now it's the front page is dominated by the humanitarian crisis, essentially. Well, it wasn't even two weeks, truthfully. I mean, yeah. the, 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 um, you know, we'll talk about this, but the reaction to the 7th of October was really quite brief before people were obsessing uh, over the Israeli response, what it would yeah. be. People were just guessing. But now that yeah. it has been unfolding, the news every night is pictures of and they are harrowing pictures of hospitals mm. that cannot perform basic operations, of, you know, video of people turning on the taps, no water's coming out. And people are saying, even people quite well disposed to Israel are saying, look, we get your war on Hamas. We get you want to eradicate them. Why is it this family can't have water, come running water coming out of the taps of their home? Yeah. I think there are a few things that we should kind of set the record straight vis-a-vis uh, -vis the issue of humanitarian aid. First of all, the former president of the United States uh, wrote a letter about Gaza and Israel, and he said, Israel's government decision to cut off food, water, and electricity to a captive civilian population uh, threatens not only to worsen a growing humanitarian crisis, it could further harden Palestinian attitudes for a generation. This is, of course, not only his opinion. We're hearing this a lot. What I'm And this is Barack um, Obama, you're quoting. Yes. You say former president. Um, yeah. And what I think is important to read is that you discern from this that there is no food, water, and electricity in the Gaza Strip, which is indeed not the case. Now, let's t go through this uh, point by point. Water. I don't know if you know, on a regular day, how much water of the water supply of the Gaza Strip comes through Israel. On a regular day, Israel supplies 10% of the water to the Gaza Strip. Now, the humanitarian part of this is... is uh, under a lot of debate and close inspection. Uh, there's a special unit in the Israeli military that is focused on that. I wish there was something on the Palestinian side um, focusing on the humanitarian situation of the Israeli hostages. But in regards to water, there is water in the Gaza Strip, particularly in the southern part. Israel did not uh, close down the water there. There is a, uh, indeed one water uh, pipe that uh, has exploded, but that is because of Hamas's uh, rockets, that to the best of Israel's uh, knowledge. Food. All of the emergency stockpiles of the 
Different organizations have not yet been open. That indicates that there is food in the Gaza Strip. And in regards to a very important uh, medical supplies, yes, it did take Israel uh, a few days to agree for that to come through the Rafah crossing in Egypt. And I think that Israel, understandably, can be a little bit trepidatious about what comes in through the Rafah crossings now that we know that Hamas has been confiscating everything coming through those crossings. By the way, we should also point out that the Kerem Shalom crossing on the Israeli side has been mainly open in the past two years uh, to bring in products into the uh, Gaza Strip. 78% of the products came from the Israeli side. Guess what? Kerem Shalom, the Israeli side of the crossing, and Erez crossing were both bombed by Hamas on October 7th. And this leads me to return to the trajectory that is important to remember. Hamas is to blame for this crisis. Israel does not want a humanitarian crisis in Gaza. It really doesn't. It is trying to do what it can under the very difficult situation. Fuel is more complicated. We understand that fuel is complicated because Hamas is taking this electricity to fuel its its terror tunnels. And then what do you do? Hamas does have a reservoir of of fuel. It doesn't want to give it to the hospitals. That is going to become definitely a point of pressure on Israel. But this whole crazy situation, which Israel does need to supply an entity that is ruled by a terror organization that uh, set out a brutal attack on it, is to begin with a very complicated situation. Yeah, no, it's obviously a mad situation where Israel is a supplier to a territory, as you say, ruled by a clear uh, mortal enemy. And that's one of the dysfunctions here. I'm troubled by those images too. I think you've put them in important okay. context around them, really important context, which is rarely heard. But, you know, I think anyone looking at that stuff, I know you'd be the same. If you see that, that, that those reports, you read those reports, but see everyone those pictures. everyone is troubled. So everybody's are we troubled, troubled by, those by it. That's the point. Of course. Of course that's what I'm saying. But then, the I, I, again, I agree. I, I think everyone is, including in Israel, I'm just asking how on earth do you fight against a terror organization so cynical, so cruel, that it not only attacks you in a surprise shock attack, murders your citizens, your innocent citizens, but then hides among their own uh, citizens so they will get killed in mass so Israel will be blamed. It is just a terrible, terrible situation. Yeah. And and we need to sort of zoom out and I, I uh, you know, of, of yeah. that from that and, and, and discuss it. And when, you know, when the uh, UN Secretary General says to Israel, this did not happen in a vacuum. Well, you have to, I mean, the world ne- needs maybe to understand that we are in the same sentiment, the same state of mind of New Yorkers after 9-11. No yeah. one said to them, this didn't happen in a vacuum. Yeah. No one said that. It's really bad, a terrible wording by him. He left himself absolutely open to that. And you're completely right. Nobody would have used that word because if they had, after 9-11, people would have said, you're saying, this is on us. You're blaming the victim. Totally get that. Yeah. It is also the case that, obviously, the first round of the Israel-Palestine conflict was not the 7th of October. You know, we know that, that these are two peoples who've been fighting over this land for a long time. And there are issues there that have been erupted every two, three years for the last decade and a half. And you can go back 120 years to 140 years for how long this conflict has gone. But he worded it terribly. I mean, I was just going to say... Again, yeah. No, I'm just going to say anyone who's seeing this only through the prism of a uh, national struggle between Palestinians and Israelis doesn't realize that they're on top of this. There is a fundamental Islamist, jihadist, religious war here. Is just not seeing the whole story, and to say nothing of talking about you know 
the Palestinians, he said, subjected to the 56 years of suffocating occupation, where Israel actually, uh, the only occupation of Gaza is by Hamas and the only Israelis in Gaza writer held by Hamas today. So, I mean, all of everything he said was so infuriating for, for Israelis. Well, in the meantime, not only the critique of Israel, but I think what we have seen this these two the past two weeks is this really terrible wave of anti-Semitism. And please don't kid yourself, this started even before Israel uh, began its operations in Gaza. I, I mean, I'm having uh, such a hard time, and all Israelis, I think, because this, this seems to us as another heartbreak uh, on top of everything else we've been experiencing, right? That not only uh, have we been massacred, but that the sort of effect of this is that Jews around the world now are not safe is just such a terrible, terrible thing to to be going through, all of us, really. Yeah. I mean, we, we started, didn't we, at the top of the podcast talking about the purpose of what we do on Unholy, and it was to bridge a kind of divide that both you and I spotted in the Jewish world between diaspora and Israel. And in the fashion that no one would have ever wanted, that divide has really narrowed, not politically in terms of support for this or that strategy, but in terms of emotionally, that mm-hmm. gap has really closed in these in, in this month of October 2023, because we are all going through something. It takes very different forms. You know, there aren't air raid sirens that send us into our safe rooms, but instead there are warnings. Uh, we've talked about them before, about kids not going to schools. There was footage this week of students at an American college, Cooper Union College in New York, forced to take shelter on Wednesday, hiding in the school library or protecting themselves in the school library as a group of masked protesters were storming the building, shouting Free Palestine, a slogan that has, you know, has its own validity, obviously, if you mean one thing, but as sounds like and can mean something else when shouted at Jewish kids, uh, many of them with, you know, kippot uh, skullcaps on their heads, huddling in the library while the protesters are pounding on the door. Uh, You know, I mentioned before that I was in Sweden this week. I was there to talk about the Holocaust. Uh, The organisers of the event before I began told me that every other Jewish event, events held by Jewish organisations had been cancelled because of fears about security, and that they themselves had ensured there was uh, security on the door, on guarding, and in fact armed police from Sweden at every entrance and exit to the building that I was speaking in. The opening words of the event from the organiser was to applaud the bravery of the <laughs> audience who had come to hear me speak about the Holocaust. And this is that a is, talk uh, about the Holocaust. And, <laughs> you know, where have we got to if that is uh, our situation? And it's frightening at just the most basic level. The uh, there is, There's just fear of what might happen. There is a very clear focus, which is on those people who were marching in the streets, holding placards with very ugly slogans, or one phenomenon which uh, I've seen in this country, and I think it's going on in other places. In fact, I know it has, because there's been video of it in, in the United States as well, of tearing down posters, bearing the faces of the hostages, particularly hostage children, And so, you know, in one American college, pictures of the babies and the children and then activists tearing them down uh, because they're taking a stance, they say, against, you know, Zionist colonialism. Therefore, there can't be a picture of a nine-month-old baby on a wall. 
Um, that's bad. And the, and related to that is this sense of disappointment where a whole lot of Jewish, often far left radicals, intellectuals, Jewish and Israelis have sent this message saying how disappointed they are and more in what one statement called the, uh, indifference and extreme moral insensitivity of, um, people who they thought previously were allies and, um, you know, Yuval Noah Harari became the latest to sign a letter from a whole group of Jewish and Israeli intellectuals, which expressed this disappointment, this uh, expressed dismay with elements, quoting from it now, elements within the global left who had on occasion justified Hamas's actions. 90 signatories, uh, David Grossman, the acclaimed Israeli novelist, Yuval Noah Harari, and a whole lot of other scholars and writers, and they're, they're speaking to something bigger. You know, the letter said, we never imagined that individuals on the left, advocates of equality, freedom, justice, and welfare would reveal such extreme moral insensitivity and political recklessness. Underneath those words is a kind of sense of heartbreak and betrayal that people thought, essentially they're saying, we thought you were our friends and we're discovering that you don't really care. Um, even when the people taken are not settlers who you could say, oh, well, that's what comes with occupation. These are people living in Israel proper. As it happens, people wholly committed to coexistence. We've heard about the people, you know, doing ferrying uh, Palestinians for medical care out of Gaza and into, uh, into Jerusalem. Uh, I think that's a really widely shared sense. And I hear it in, over and over again in conversations here. It's been, somebody put it to me in Sweden. They said, it's one of those moments as if a flare has gone up and you suddenly see out of the darkness where everyone really stands. Mm. And where they stand is, is really use the word heartbreak and betrayal. I think that is the feeling that many have of you can't even just simply condemn this torture of children, the kidnapping of women. You, you can't just say that is wrong. Somehow when it happens to Israelis, I would probably more accurately say when it happens to Jews and suddenly there's context, suddenly there's yes, but suddenly there's an apologetic tone. And that's in the best sense, because we've seen even, as you mentioned, worse uh, things that have been said in these demonstrations. It's really, I, I don't know what to even do with it yet. I mean, there's so many thoughts uh, and so many disturbing thoughts in our heads since since this happened that I, this I'm, I'm trying to put aside for the moment. But just that feeling of, of, wait, Jews can't be safe anywhere. They can't be safe in their homeland. They can't be safe in Europe. They can't be safe in the United States. How, how, how have we arrived at this at this junction, I just, I, I really, I don't have anything smart to say, but just be very, very uh, saddened about this. No, I think that is what you just touched on there. You've sort of gone there, which is the emotional train of thought or train of feeling that diaspora Jews are having, and maybe Israeli Jews are having it the other way around. Because when, you know, anti-Semitism never goes away, it erupts at different periods. And there's almost this unspoken sense, well, if things get really bad, we'll go to Israel. That's, that's, mm. the, it, for, since 1948, that's been in the Jewish imagination. Now people think, well, obviously we, you know, if we were talking about safety, you wouldn't choose Israel right now as a place of Jewish safety for obvious reasons. But equally, diaspora living for many people is, suddenly feels newly unsafe. And so, in some ways, you know, for the first time 
since 1948, there is a feeling, and I think this goes for why there's this state of anxiety in the Jewish mm-hmm. people w- across the world, which is maybe nowhere is safe for us. And that, I think, in the sort of Zion, post-Zionist period, post-1948 period, that is a new and very shocking thought. And I think that's yes. partly why why there's a kind of trembling going on, of mm-hmm. uh, which is common to Jews inside Israel and Jews outside Israel. I mean, you know, we sh- again, we should get a sense of proportion. Governments are supporting, you know, their Jewish communities now. You know, in this country, more money for security outside synagogues and so on. In Sweden, they wanted my talk to go ahead. The Swedish armed police were there to protect us, right? So, and, and Israel is still a formidable military force that can protect its citizens, even notwithstanding exactly. what happened on October 7th. And still, and still, that sad realization that, you know, people really hate Jews is something that we will have to wrestle with and see if there's anything to do about. I, you know, it's just, yeah. uh, I, I think this when happens this is- to us after we were attacked, not, you know, the, the, the outpouring of emotion should have been empathy, not more violence. It's this just, is, this it doesn't is the make thing. sense. I mean, I think there's things about the attacks which people and I include myself in this, somebody like me would have anticipated, and it turns out we were wrong, I would have thought that for the immediate period afterwards, there would only be empathy and sympathy. I would have been bracing myself for the reaction once Israel responded. That I knew there'd be no sympathy then. I I completely would have been uh, anticipating that. But for the immediate hours, I thought, okay, right now no one's going to obviously you know, say a bad word. But instead, there were people already on the street saying this is beautiful and inspiring, and 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 people also by their ad, by their silence, you know, on social media and others not saying anything, no empathy. That has been a real jolt, and 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 I include myself in those among the jolted by these developments. You know, once we talked about how we had a weird habit, you and me, of whenever we talked about anti-Semitic things, we would always somehow make a joke. Uh, we would find ourselves be, you know, laughing somehow, even as we were staring into some pit of uh, horror. And it just seemed to me, and we said at the time, that's probably a very Jewish thing. Uh, sure enough, people have managed to find some humor even in this terrible period. And I think the fact that that even happened is interesting, but uh, you should tell us about the, you know, the, the number one Israeli TV satire show and particularly the butt of their latest jokes. We have uh, talked about this show a lot. It's Eretz Nederet. It's the Israeli version of Saturday Night Live. And on Wednesday, after 19 days of war, uh, the show came back. A, a lot of, uh, you know, bellyache trying to somehow make Israelis laugh at this time. I think it was SNL that came back nine days after 9-11. So it's the same kind of vibe. It's not completely ha-ha funny, right? It's more uh, maybe to put a smile on your face. But one of their jokes was surprise, surprise about the BBC. And they're not exactly objective reporting on the uh, bombing of the uh, hospital in Gaza City. So this is a clip. It was in English of um, them, you know, Eretz Neder at the satire program making fun of the BBC. Let's listen to that. Good evening from London. Here are some news from the war in Gaza. Israel has bombed a hospital, killing hundreds of innocent people. With more details, our Middle East correspondent, Harry Whitegilt. Good evening, Rachel, from the illegal colony of Tel Aviv. 
the United States Pentagon says it has evidence Israel did not bomb the hospital. Wait, what? <laughs> what? Well, I, I guess it's going to be one of those things we can never be sure about. Mm, but it's still Israel's fault, indeed. Of course, of course, because... Because the Israeli blockade prevented Hamas from getting proper functioning missiles, and this is why tragic accidents like this happens indeed. Thank you so much, Harry. Good night, everyone, and remember, Israel is ISIS. Even I'm sure some BBC executives and journalists will uh, see the the, the yeah. funny side of that. And uh, credits to them uh, for being on air now, if ever there's going to be a difficult time. And yet, like we've been saying, it's sometimes, it, maybe it's a Jewish thing, but some it is almost a coping mechanism, I think we said last time, but that's how you deal with these uh, moments. And also you look, I think, don't you, for moments of of hope and of heroism in situations like this. And bit by bit, there have, amongst all the horror stories that have emerged about 7th of October, there have also been some remarkable stories. We talked about them, fathers saving sons and grandchildren in moments uh, when when the fighting was intense, gunfights at Kibbutzim and so on. But uh, I know that you've um, you found and you told me about a story which is quite something. I mean, look, there have been, I have to say, Israeli society was obviously very divided before this happened. We talked about the sort of unity and solidarity we're feeling. One of the arguments uh, in Israel pre-October 7th was the issue of women combat soldiers. There were a lot of people in the more extreme uh, parts of the religious Zionism uh, in Israel who said, no, no, you should never have women as combat soldiers. And, And we have to say, they... Uh, women excelled in this uh, operation. Um, there are stories, uh, for example, Lieutenant Colonel Orben Yehuda, who's the commander of the Karakal Battalion, who basically rescued the soldiers at the uh, Sufa uh, military base. She was the she managed the battle there. There's an amazing story of Inbal Lieberman, who was uh, essentially the security a coordinator for Nir Am, she saved the kibbutz. She realized at 6.30 in the morning what was going on. And she, I don't want to say, almost single-handedly killed uh, the terrorists there and managed to to save the kibbutz. So so this is just to remind anyone who thinks uh, that women can't be part of a combat operation, just how heroic they were. There are, of course, many, many others, policemen, soldiers, civilians, really being heroic in this, in these uh, terrible days. Yeah, and worth recording that story. I wanted to mention a little correction, and partly because I was saying before about how our reach uh, and audience uh, is is widening. Uh, I was contacted by a Christian listener, actually, uh, I think involved in the church out of Vienna, Austria, who wanted to correct me on the uh, real name of the hospital uh, that uh, uh, where there was uh, m- you know, many people killed in Gaza last week. I referred to it as the Al-Akhli Bas- Baptist Hospital. Apparently, it used to be that. Uh, and um, our Christian listener and friend writes in to say, it is uh, just the Al-Akhli Hospital. It was run by the Baptists until the 1980s. The uh, the word Baptist uh, has stuck colloquially since then, but apparently wrong. So happy to correct that. Happy to have uh, listeners all the way there in Vienna, Austria. Uh, if this uh, has been helpful for you hearing this podcast, we're getting a lot of feedback that people are finding it some comfort and help. Uh, then please do tell your friends. I know lots of people are doing that and we are grateful. 
Yeah, we hope that beyond the analysis, we can also somehow support all of our listeners throughout trying to work out what has been going on. Uh, I know that this podcast has been helpful for me to at least process what has been going on. Uh, so let's say our thank yous to uh, Gaia Glazer and Omer Primat, Rom Atik. And uh, we shall meet uh, next week, Jonathan. Yeah, I'll see you then, Yoni. See ya.